Father, I, I can only hope and pray that our worship of you this morning thus far has been pleasing to you. I pray that it has been a, a sweet and fragrant aroma. That, Lord, we have sought to worship you in spirit and in truth. And now, Father, we continue to do so by looking to the truth of your word. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to interpret properly. Help us to apply it diligently. And Lord, we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. On July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. died when the light aircraft that he was flying crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. Kennedy's wife, Carolyn Bissett, and sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, were also on board and died. The Piper Saratoga departed from New Jersey's Essex County Airport. Its intended route was along the coastline of Connecticut and across Rhode Island Sound to Martha's Vineyard Airport. The uh, official investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board officially concluded that Kennedy fell victim to spatial disorientation while he was descending over water at night and consequently lost control of his plane. Kennedy did not hold an instrument rating and therefore he was only certified to fly under visual flight rules. At the time of the crash, the weather and light conditions were such that all basic landmarks were obscured, making visual flight challenging, although legally still permissible. So part of the the training for a pilot's license, each pupil has to do something called blind flying, which involves practicing maneuvers while in flight using only the instruments without looking out the window. One pilot reports, quote, the first time I was preparing to take off with my instructor to do some instrument flying, he warned me not to rely on my physical sensations aboard the aircraft. The instruments were all reliable. They were to be trusted. But he said my physical sensations during time, during the time I was flying blind, could not be trusted. After we took off, the instructor had me put on a special hood. For the next half hour or so, my vision would be restricted to the instrument panel by that hood. And I immediately began to understand what my instructor had warned me about. The the vibrations of the plane, the engine noise, and the unevenness of the outside air all combined to tell my senses that the little Cessna 150 was doing things that the instruments denied was happening. For that half hour or so, I forced myself to trust those instruments. Even then, at times, my physical instincts would temporarily catch me off guard. Oh, it was a reassuring feeling to take that hood off and fly that plane with an eye on the horizon and the ground below. Friends... A pilot has to sometimes trust their instruments instead of trusting in sight or sound, touch to make their way. 
And for a Christian, we also have an instrument that we need to trust the Bible, even when other things around us might try and, and tell us something different, whether that be people or circumstances, even emotions. And this is what you will see today from our text. You will see a group of Christians known as the Church of Thessalonica who were being challenged to trust in the Word of God versus people and things that were going on around them that would try and tell them otherwise. So last week we finished up chapter 1, which was primarily all about God's righteous judgment. Paul now begins a section where he returns to a topic that he, he introduced in his first letter, the day of the Lord, which continues and concerns the judgment and wrath of God and the return of Jesus, followed by uh, a significant aspect of end times events that we will get to in the next couple of weeks, the man of lawlessness. This all ties in with chapter 1, because again, chapter 1 being all about God's judgment of the wicked and rescuing of the saved at the return of his son. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Let's, let's open up to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, where we will, we will read chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 12. We're only going through verses 1 to 3 today. But it's a a kind of whole section. So why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with his breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, before we jump into our text here this morning, 
maybe it would be good for us to just be reminded a little bit of what Paul has previously shared in his first letter to the Thessalonians some six months or so prior. So keep your bookmark there in 2 Thessalonians. And in my Bible, I only have to turn back one page. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and, and find chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4 and verse 13. <clears throat> in this passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Paul shared some facts with them pertaining to the resurrection of the saints, specifically about those Thessalonian Christians who had died. Now, you have to remember that Christians of Paul's day generally believed that, that Jesus would be returning soon, even during their lifetime. So, so for their Christian brothers and sisters who had come to know the Lord and then have since died, there was some fear on the part of those that were alive that these dearly departed loved ones and, and friends had somehow missed out on the rapture to be with Jesus. And our text this morning also tells us that they may have thought that the day of the Lord had already occurred because of some of the persecution and afflictions that they were suffering, that they were enduring. In other words, they were, there was this feeling that they had, had missed the rapture and were now in the midst of God's judgment and wrath. So, so back here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Paul reassures them that, that they haven't missed anything, explaining to them that when Jesus first returns, he will only come back as far as the clouds. He will then rapture the dead. That's that word harpazo. It means snatched up, snatched up by raising their dead bodies to new life resurrecting them, reuniting them with their souls and bringing them to himself up there in the clouds. This will then be followed by those who are <clears throat> alive and they will have their bodies glorified and will also meet Christ in the clouds. And from that point on, the scripture tells us that they will all always be with the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Right. That's a good thing. Then in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here, in verses 1 to 11, Paul continues by, by giving them some more info about these end times events that would be happening, namely the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1 right there of chapter 5. He says, now, as to the times and the epics, that means seasons, Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well. In parentheses, we might say, because he previously had told them these things. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And we learn that means unexpectedly, it means even destructively. Now remember too that, that we learned that the day of the Lord is again about God's judgment and wrath that surrounds the return of his son Jesus. And, and we also learned even looking back to the Old Testament that, that this phrase the day of the Lord can be understood in, in some different ways. For instance, it can be a period of time either preceding Jesus' return, as in what we, what we call the tribulation period, or at his return to earth when he 
comes back to the actual earth and executes his judgment and wrath. It's even used a little bit later on in 2 Peter 3.10 to refer to that time later on when, when Jesus will actually destroy the current heavens and earth in favor of recreating the new ones. So then we have to ask ourselves, so what, what tells us which understanding of the day of the Lord is to be used for whatever place we are in Scripture where it's mentioned? What's king? Context, right? Context is always king. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul then, in speaking about the day of the Lord, he is doing so in the context of the rapture, but, but he, is, he is also introducing it in a more general sense, in, in, in the sense of kicking off God's judgment and wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 3, it says, While they are saying, peace and safety... Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. <clears throat> now, you might even think about the, 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 the most immediate destruction that will occur on earth when millions of people just suddenly vanish in the rapture. Have you thought of that? I mean, think about, you know, what, what happens to an aircraft? What happens to an aircraft or even trains that might be piloted by believers? They will crash. How about cars? I mean, can you even imagine what would happen out here on the Los Angeles freeway system as people just suddenly disappear and are no longer driving their cars? Can you imagine even the panic that will break out throughout the world almost instantaneously? But then soon following, you will have this this tribulation time, seven years of tribulation, with the last three and a half years being the great tribulation. And it's during this time that God's judgments, according to the book of Revelation, will take place. We mentioned those previously, three groups of seven each, the seal uh, and trumpet and bowl judgments. And then after this comes Jesus' physical return to earth to, to finish off this war against his enemies. That will then usher in his thousand-year reign. Uh, then following that will be his final great white throne judgment, followed by his destruction of the current heavens and earth and that recreation of the new, which again, also being referred to as the day of the Lord. In other words... I believe that Paul here is referring to it in this 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, passage in a, a more general sense where it encompasses even a longer period of time. So with all this in mind, let us move back to 2 Thessalonians. So flip your page or two. We'll get back to 2 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Picking up in chapter 2, verses 1 to, oh, we'll, go, we'll get through a part, of, uh, a part of three. And in this text this morning, it's pretty simple the way it's laid out. We're, we're going to just briefly consider the topic at hand. Uh, that'll be followed by the problem, because we'll see a problem in our text. And then Paul's offering of a solution to the problem. So first, being the topic, look back there again. At 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And, and this is where things get connected back to 1 Thessalonians and what we just talked about 
namely the Thessalonian believers' lack of understanding, or, or we might say misunderstanding, regarding the return of Jesus and their being gathered together to him, a.k.a. the rapture. And, and this is specifically that rapture is for the purpose, the purpose of saving believers from God's judgment and wrath, his judgment and wrath that is actually meant for unbelievers. And from that moment on, for them to live together with Christ. Well, this, this brings us to the problem. The problem that we see picking up in verse 2. Now we could tack on that little, now we request of you, brethren, because the, then it, with regard is kind of in a parentheses fashion. We request of you, brethren, look at verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The problem is that the Thessalonians might have thought that the day of the Lord had already come or that they were living in the midst of it. And again, you say, well, why would they have thought that? Two basic reasons. The first is, remember, that they were, after you know becoming saved and, and forming into a church, they almost immediately started enduring persecutions and sufferings and afflictions. And, and they mistook those persecutions and sufferings for what those things that they were going through currently as being a part of God's judgment and wrath. They thought that the day of the Lord was now upon them because they saw those things as being God's judgment and wrath. And, and we can understand the distress this would have caused them because it would have meant that they all had missed the rapture if that was indeed the case. They would have all missed the rapture, Jesus' return to the clouds. If indeed they believed they were living in the day of the Lord, then it also would have meant continued judgment and wrath until the actual day of Jesus' return, not just to the clouds, but to earth. So, So Paul wants to reassure them that that is not the case, that the day of the Lord has not yet come in that sense. Now, a question I think surely comes up is, why didn't they understand these things? Because the fact is, these were things that Paul says he has previously shared with them, even when he was last with them. If in our passage of 2 uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, just jump down to verse 5 for a moment. Verse 5. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Huh. Even if we were to jump back to 1 Thessalonians 5, again, verses 1 to 2, remember that he said, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. They, they should have known these things because they were previously told these things. Paul didn't feel like they had anything that needed to be written down because all these things he had previously shared, he was counting on them, understanding, knowing, remembering, again, concerning the return of Christ, the rapture, the day of the Lord. So why weren't they getting it? Why weren't they 
understanding or, or remembering? What's, what's the issue going on here with the Thessalonians? I, I think that there's a couple of things. The first is this. I, now, I don't know about you, but um, you see, we have this thing called the Bible. We have this completed canon of Scripture, right? God's revelation to man, including everything God wants us to know about end times events. So that being said, please raise your hand if you feel like you have a perfect, complete, 100% accurate understanding of every word, jot, and tittle concerning end times events. I saw one hand go up. Maybe they should be up here preaching. Because I'm not putting my hand up, okay? Yeah, crickets, right? Exactly. So you can imagine even how the Thessalonians might have felt. You know, here's just a, a quick for instance. I mean, imagining, uh, you know, you know nothing about building a house. I know nothing about building a house, okay? And, and me and my, my pals, who also know nothing about building a house, are, are visited, um, you know, by, uh, by somebody who actually knows how to build a house, and they show up and they teach us how to build a house. They actually spend several weeks with our group, maybe even a month or two, and during this time, they're mostly verbally telling us about how to build this house, and, and they tell us at different times, too. It's not like we sit in a classroom eight hours a day for, you know, this period of time. Oh, for, <clears throat> they'll tell us about this on this day, and then, oh, the next evening, they tell us some other additional things, and, and, and so we're kind of getting things, you know, in, in chunks as, as time goes on. Um, and, and maybe in our group, some were taking notes, but not necessarily everybody. And, uh, and sometimes we're all together. Sometimes we're getting some one-on-one instructions. It varied. But finally, the day came for the teacher to leave. And a short while after that, our little group gets together and we said, okay, gang, let's build a house. Let's, 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 let's see if we can do this thing. And, you know, things maybe start out okay. You know, we remember enough to basically get the foundation going. But as we are progressing, uh, we're already wishing that we had better notes. Um, you know, maybe we, we picked a guy to write some stuff down as much as possible, but he wasn't there for, for everything, for every instruction and every conversation. And there's maybe um, some things that we missed. <clears throat> we're, we're trying to remember everything the teacher told us, but everyone remembers things a little bit differently and as to how things are supposed to be done. Well, finally, we get towards maybe the end uh, stage of building this house where maybe we're getting ready to put the roof on, and that's fairly important, but we're not having much luck. So finally, we think, you know what, let's just send somebody back to the instructor and ask him. So we do that, and the instructor's like, seriously, guys, I told you exactly how to do it. I mean, you should remember, you know, but okay, I get that it's complicated, so I'm going to write it all down and send back the instructions. And the instructions come back, and all oh, praise the Lord, all is well, and we get the house finished. Friends, eschatology, the study of end times events, yes, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's, it's taxing on some of our pea brains, right? It might be difficult for us to understand and make sense, even with the completed canon of Scripture, uh, but let alone if we had to verbally just hear it all presented to us and, and then try and retain it all, right? So you can imagine how the Thessalonians might have had some issues there. That's part one of the problem. Part two is what we see back in Thess- 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 2 
when Paul says that you not be quickly shaken, that's the request, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it would seem that there were things going on that were hindering the Thessalonians in trusting everything that Paul and Silas and Timothy had initially taught them. The text tells us they were quickly shaken from their composure. They were disturbed by certain things. Shaken uh, literally means a a waving or a rocking motion, uh, moving to and fro. Even that phrase, a reed shaken by the wind, right? Moving back and and forth. Metaphorically, it means to agitate or disturb. It's it's their composure that's being shaken. Referring to, to one's mind, one's mental perception. But in the sense of having a firmness of mind. Their, their mind was not firm. You had a firm mind about things, but now that's being shaken. And then this word disturbed means to be troubled, even terrified. You might think of a time when, you know, something happened to you. You thought you kind of understood things in this vein, but then something happens and it just seems to blow that out of the water, just kind of shake you up, rock your world, disturb your moorings, maybe even cause you to doubt what you previously thought to be true. That's what they were going through. And furthermore, these hindrances came from specific sources. Paul tells us spirits, messages, and letters. And then he says, as if from us, meaning as if from the Apostle Paul and and Timothy and Silas. Now, what Paul is getting at here is false teachers. False teachers that had showed up to the church there in Thessalonica, and are masquerading, even possibly as apostles, trying to to dissuade the Thessalonian church and turn their hearts away from Christ. Now, who would these false teachers be? Where did they come from? Well, keep your marker there in Second Thessalonians and turn back to Acts, or turn ahead. Now, back, back, Acts seventeen. Oh, wow. You ever do that? You just turn it and it goes right to it? And you go, wow, that's, that's cool. Acts 17. Back to verses 5 to 8. Now, this is a, a passage that as we were starting Thessalonians, the first uh, book, and then going into the second, we, we talked about a little bit so that we had some good context for Paul and Silas and Timothy showing up to Thessalonica. But it's something that I think just bears repeating because it does give us good insight Uh, that we need to understand in terms of why people would try and do things to hinder the Thessalonians' beliefs or who these people were. So at this point, Paul has preached the gospel in the synagogue at Thessalonica where some of the Jews, a large number of Greeks, and a number of the leading women believed. They believed in the gospel and they joined up with Paul and Silas. Now look at verse 5 of chapter 17. But the Jews... Becoming jealous. Ding, 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 ding. Here we go. And taking along some wicked men. 
from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, that's where Paul and the others were staying, they were seeking to bring them out to the people, meaning Paul and Silas Timothy. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the world and come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Now, as the story goes, friends, Paul and company actually leave Thessalonica and they travel then a a little west, a little south to Berea, where we read in verse 13, look at Acts 17 and verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So obviously, friends, when the Jews returned to Thessalonica after that, they just kind of continued this campaign against the Thessalonian Christians and those other people that were not necessarily Jews that they got all fired up and stirred up from the city. Even going so far as to try and persuade them that the day of the Lord had actually come And that they had missed the rapture, probably in hopes of getting them to abandon their Christianity. Because remember, they were jealous and return even to their roots of Judaism. And they did this by infiltrating the church, by posing as false teachers and then trying to deceive the church through these spirits, messages and letters. As if they were from Paul and company. So then how are we to understand the spirits, the messages and letters. Well, they all three share some of the same elements. Spirit, pneumatos, in the Greek would be a reference to some kind of prophetic utterance, as in one of the false teachers maybe pretending to be a prophet or or to speak in tongues. Then we have message, which is that word logos, literally means word and would be referencing uh, messages spoken by these false teachers in the form of arguments or or trying to use their false reasoning to dissuade them and then we have letters most likely being forged letters that were supposedly from Paul now how might the church know if a letter actually came from Paul or was counterfeit Three basic ways, just real quick, uh, regarding Paul's letters to the Thessalonians that they would be able to know if it was the real deal or not. Number one, the carrier would have been kind of the guarantor of authenticity. In this case, with the Thessalonians and, and Paul, Timothy. Timothy was the courier. And they all knew Timothy from before when the three of them were all together. Okay, so if it came from Timothy, great. Uh, then we believe that to be true. Also, you had the signature of the author. Paul often did the common practice of letter writing uh, back then through what you call an amanuensis. Um, That's just a $5 word, meaning a first century version of a personal secretary. Okay, this amuensis. And in some cases, the actual author, like what we'll see from Paul, they they will include some kind of personal signature to kind of verify that it is indeed them writing 
this letter. In 2 Thessalonians, if we fast forwarded to chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So they would be able to know that, especially from his past letter, if indeed this one kind of synced up with that one. And then, of course, you had the content of the letter itself. Did the letter match the teachings and lifestyle of Paul, who is known by so many uh, through the churches that he established? And, of course, he reminds them in both First and Second Thessalonians that these things that they were questioning, he had already shared with them, and they would do well to remember this when they might read a counterfeit letter that now is saying contrary things. I said this to you in First Thessalonians, now this forged letter is saying contrary things that doesn't add up, discard it. And again, the piece of information that the false teachers were trying to get the Thessalonians to believe, we see back in, in 2 Thess uh, chapter 2, at the end of verse 2, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And what the false teachers were trying to get them to believe is that the day of the Lord was already there, already here. Instead of being this judgment and wrath that they were supposed to be spared from by the rapture. In other words, the false teachers are kind of like, you know, you've missed the rapture, you guys. You've missed it. And God's judgment and wrath is here and it is upon you. You've blown it. You better throw in the towel on this Christianity stuff. And then when we get to verse 3, Paul also warns them not to be deceived by these things. So, so what Paul is doing here in 2 Thess chapter 2 is, is he's getting now even more specific about this day of the Lord and when exactly it would take place. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he shares about it in a more general sense, as in a period of time. But now he realizes they need clarity. They need clarity, and he's going to speak about it more specifically so they aren't confused that it may already be happening. All of this is the problem presented to, to them and that we see in our text. This takes us to our, our last point, number three, the solution. The solution. Look at verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. And then it goes on uh, and, and continues. But we're going to pause right there. Now we've already seen in verses 1 and 2. That Paul requested them not to be shaken, not to be disturbed and now he adds let no one deceive you that means to seduce or to beguile or to lead them out of the right way into error even to deceive completely don't let anyone do this and this friends is so important in the church where where many are often misled and charlatans and, and false teachers can abound. Now, it may surprise you to learn, there's actually a lot of money to be made off church. 
or churches out there in the world. To be made off church, to be made off religion, and even more specifically, money to be made off of Christianity. There's a great series. I, I, I keep forgetting this. I want to I want to um, I want to show these here at church and we'll we'll get it done and plan for it at some point. Maybe if we can get it done sometime this year, that'd be awesome. There's a great series of movies out there called American Gospel. Anyone seen any of the American Gospel movies? See just a few hands, so that's good. It means we need to we need to watch these. These are just some incredible uh, uh, documentaries. Uh, they've made part one, part two, and they're actually coming out with part three. I think sometime this year. The first one was called Christ Alone, and and the documentary uh, filmmakers uh, take to task the Word of Faith movement, right? Exposing these people in the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel movement as the hucksters and deceivers that they are. People like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn and Bill Johnson and Todd White. Uh, and they've got great people that they interview in the documentary, people that you know and, uh, and love, and including John MacArthur on there at, at Grace and, and many others, many others. But there, there's tremendous movies. And, and like I said, we'll see if we can, if we can uh, show them here. But if you will, turn to Matthew 24. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Beginning in verse 3. So, back there at the beginning of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 24, verse 3. This is Jesus, and he is with the disciples. This is the week before his crucifixion, during a, a, a teaching time that he had with them, known as the Olivet Discourse. Because, of course, it took place on the Mount of Olives. Here he's instructing them on end times events. And he says this, picking up in verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And what comes with him is that day of the Lord. And of course, all the wrath and judgment. I'm I'm just interjecting that. Uh, And then uh, in in verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. It's exactly what Paul is saying to them in Thessalonica. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead Many. This is what Paul is warning them about. That yes, there will be all of these these deceivers and these these so called apostles and people. Friends, we 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 have to remember we have to remember that the enemy Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and his servants also disguise themselves as what servants of righteousness. As we read in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15, we have to realize that, quote, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So says Ephesians 4, 
14, we, we must be on the lookout for those, quote, walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 2. We must be on guard for those who, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, Romans 16, 18. We must be on the alert for evil men and imposters who will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3.13, knowing that many deceivers have gone out into the world, 2 John 7. It's already happening. And he tells them, Paul tells them, Back in our passage, the reason that they, the Thessalonians, should not be shaken, disturbed, or disturbed or deceived by false teachers spreading false doctrine in verse 5, when he asked the rhetorical question, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? The implied answer being, you should. You should. And again, just so we're clear, what things? The things that they needed to know pertaining to end times, specifically the rapture and the day of the Lord. And then and then wedged in between those two would be what comes next in our text, namely the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. But we're getting just ahead of ourselves. Just 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 a minute here. In other words. If the Thessalonians would have just stuck with what Paul had told them when he was with them, or or Timothy, what he had said, or, or, or even the letter of 1 Thessalonians, they would have been fine and dandy. There wouldn't have been any need to fret or worry or be anxious about any of these things. But at the same time, I think we can all uh, empathize. We can all kind of understand their predicament. I mean, these folks were stressed out. They were stressed out. They were under just tremendous burden. Carrying the weight of persecution and affliction and suffering. And I, you know, I just think sometimes maybe we just don't think as clearly when we're under these kinds of stresses. And maybe it's then that we tend to act out a little more from our emotions, right? Versus what we know in our hearts to be true. We trust these kind of exterior things instead of our instruments, the instrument, right? The word of God. To this, one writer has said, truth is not determined by emotions or circumstances, but by scripture. Believers must allow biblical truth and theology to rise above every situation, end quote. Absolutely true. Trust your instrument. Trust the word of God. So Paul is saying that what he has already told them when he was physically with them, as well as through his first letter, he has told them everything they needed to know about these things. And what they needed to do was to trust His teaching, which is to say, trust the word of God, because Paul is giving them divine revelation. Do not trust the false teachers and these things that they are presenting to them in the the form of the spirits and the messages 
and the letters. Now, he does give them one more solution, if you will, to the problem. And it comes in the form of a time marker so that they can gauge when certain events are to happen. He tells them that the way to know that they are not yet in the day of the Lord is by telling them in verse 3, back in verse 3 of Second Thessalonians 2, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. It will not come is in italics because those words are not in the actual Greek text. But context tells us that Paul is indeed referring to the day of the Lord there. So what he is saying is that you know, Thessalonians, that you are not in the day of the Lord because the apostasy has to come first and it hasn't come first yet. It hasn't happened yet. And this was not something that he shared with them back in 1 Thessalonians 5, when that was in a more general context, but now getting more specifically, getting more specific, he realizes he needs to, to share this with them now as well. Uh, of course, this begs the question, another question, what's the apostasy? Apostasia. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. It literally means to depart. In Acts 21, 21, it refers to forsaking the law of Moses. In our text, it is often translated in, in other translations of the Bible as rebellion or falling away. Now, this rebellion, this falling away, this apostasy is a common theme throughout Scripture. And it can be understood in a general way as people rebelling against or falling away from the truth of the gospel. We learned last week about an apostate church in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea. And there have been apostate people, such as those mentioned in Hebrews 6, 4-6, when the author of Hebrews writes this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. This is referring to unbelievers unbelievers who have been around the church who have have tasted and seen and heard all of these things apostasy will continue into the end times as we already read how evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived However, Paul is not referring in, in our text in 2 Thessalonians to some kind of general apostasy kind of deal here that's been, you know, happening through the years and will continue to happen until Jesus returns. Rather, Paul has a, a specific event in mind. And we know this for three reasons. First, because Paul is using this apostasy as a marker, again, a point in time that will tell the Thessalonians and, and consequently all of us that the day of the Lord now can happen. In other words, it will not happen until the apostasy has occurred. Then it will happen. Secondly, Paul uses the definite article in the Greek there indicating the 
apostasy or the, the, the. Well, now I'll get everyone who's an English major telling me, no, it's this. You know, that's, that's good. I probably need to hear that. The apostasy <laughs> indicating an event, not apostasy in a general way. And then thirdly, we know Paul has an event in mind because the man of lawlessness is connected to this specific apostasy, this rebellion, this falling away. Now, want to know more about this apostasy and this man of lawlessness? You'll have to come back next week. But all of this to say, the Thessalonians can rest easy that they were not in yet the day of the Lord, as Paul means for it to be understood here. Their persecution, their affliction, their suffering was not connected to the day of the Lord. They have not missed the rapture or the return of Jesus. And for that, they can rejoice, rejoice. So what what should our takeaway be from from this text and what we have what we have mined out of it so far? Let's let's return for just a moment to flying by instruments versus those things around us that, you know, are trying to tell us something else is true. They're trying to tell us something different than what we have learned to be true, what we know and trust to be true according to God's word. These things in life or people or situations or circumstances. The Thessalonians, we know what theirs were. They were going through some intense stuff. I mean, these were new believers, new believers under this this just incredible weight of suffering with this persecution and affliction, and they fared it well by faith, faithfully so, and yet they were still distressed because, again, they, they, they thought their loved ones, you know, would miss the rapture, and oh, no, now we've missed it too, and we're in the day of the Lord, and oh, my goodness. And they were under threat by false teachers trying to shake their composure and disturb them by deceiving them through these fake spirits and messages and letters. And of course, what they needed to do, again, was to return and stand firm on what Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had already taught them, which is to say the word of God. This they needed to trust with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And friends... Is it any different for us today that we would that we would continue to to hold fast to to return to when we need it to to run back to to make sure we are rooted in and have the solid foundation in God's inerrant infallible all sufficient scripture his holy word this is what we need to hold on to and, and we recognize, as we have many times, that we are in some crazy times, right? And maybe not so crazy as in other times in history, but to each of us at these different, you know, periods of history, we feel like it's some crazy times. We're in some crazy times, right? My kids have this book called The Topsy Turvies. Owen does, and we read this book, and it's all about this family, and everything's opposite. 
Everything's opposite. So the family, you know, they, they wake up at night and they, they eat dinner instead of breakfast. And then they go to work, you know, and everything's in reverse. And that's, I'm like, that's what it feels like sometimes in our world. It's this topsy-turvy, upside-down, backwards, whatever kind of world. And, 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 and in light of this, this is the reason why we need to hold fast to God's word all the more. So that when the world seems upside down, we don't trust in governments. We trust in the word of God. When governments fail us, which they are prone to do, and politics don't go your way, then you don't turn to the politicians, even the ones that you might think you like. You turn to the word of God for your understanding. When the headlines seem almost unbelievable, and boy, don't they seem unbelievable sometimes. Don't believe the media. Believe the word of God. Filter everything through the word of God. When your marriage is in a difficult spot, don't rely on your feelings and your emotions or Oprah or shrinks or unbelievers. Rely on the word of God. And when relationships get messy, because they inevitably will, don't put your faith in things like even the internet or social media to get your help or some self-help guru. Put your faith in the Word of God. And when work is hard or stressful, or maybe it's even hard to come by, lean on the word of God. And when difficult decisions have to be made, rely on the word of God. And when temptations arise, trust the word of God. And when persecution brings suffering, believe in the word of God. And when people, friends, bring their own brand of truth your way, which they inevitably do, we have to trust in the more sure word of God. This has to be our light. This has to be what leads us through tumultuous times, crazy times, topsy-turvy times, whatever. As individuals, or as a family, or even as a church. And of course, in order to, to do any of this, you first need to have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have needed to trust in God's Son by faith, believing in His gospel. The good news. The good news that we all need. The good news that, <clears throat> that because of God's great love for His creation, that He has sent His Son, Jesus, to, to be our sacrifice, to be the propitiation of our sins, to take all of His wrath and, and judgment that is meant for us, it goes to His Son. And His Son, in return, imputes or, or gives to us His righteousness so that when we believe by faith, then, then God doesn't see that, 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 that sin that needs to be punished. He sees the righteousness of His Son given to us. And so, friends, the Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. 
And I, I encourage you, who wants to go out, out those doors and, and do some of the battle that, that we find ourselves in, some of the, the conflict and the war that we inevitably will be a part of without the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that's the great blessing for those that put their faith and trust that, that he died on the cross in their place and that he went into the ground, but three days later resurrected from the grave, conquering sin and death conquering Satan, then the scripture tells us that he gives us his Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us, to then help us to have this trust and this faith in his word that he will walk with us out there always. And what a great encouragement that is to us. What a great blessing that is to us. That the Lord Jesus Christ would do that for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for ah, your word. This word of truth. The Bible. Holy Scripture. Your word, Father. And Lord, yes, we might be tempted sometimes to deviate because we look around and it, it, it feels this way or somebody is telling us this and it sounds kind of good. And Lord, we need to trust our instruments. We need to trust your word, even when all these outside influences maybe tell us not to. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is all sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness faith and the practicing of that faith. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to trust in Jesus as their Savior, I pray they would just cry out to you right now in prayer and just ask for your forgiveness, acknowledging that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And Lord, we give you thanks. And may it all be for your glory and honor and praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.